This is Fine, episode 3.1, Elective Affinities. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Jeremy. Welcome back. It's been uh, a little while, huh? It's, it's been some time. We've, uh, we've taken, uh, again, some time to uh, um, raise our children, but they're, they're in college now, so uh, everything's good. We can get back to uh, the important work, which is podcasting. Imagine if we were mice. We would be on like, we'd be like, oh, yes, those children, they've already gone into the world. We're on our next set of children now. Th- those children would already have their own children, so um, we're That's not right. quite there yet. But Of course, if we were mice doing a podcast, that would even be more interesting. That would be really weird, um, but I hope to live to see the day. Um, so we thought we'd do this podcast after yet another election, the first election of the Trump era. Um, and I, I have a cold take, not a hot take, which is that a lot of the anger that I felt towards um, Obama's down ticket failures, which for what's worth, I still feel a little bit. But it uh, seems mitigated by the fact that I'm, I'm really just becoming a believer in this whole thermostatic theory of um, at least sort of state legislatures and, and maybe even the House. Why, why don't you explain what that is? Because I, th- I think that I certainly was not familiar with that terminology specifically, although I think I maybe know it under a different name. Sure. Uh, and I may be uh, butchering this. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to, in the pod notes, we'll refer to the political scientist whose theory this is. But roughly, like, the concept is that um, midterms are always bad, barring some exceptional case. So there was a critique of Obama, I think a fair critique, that he uh, lost something like 900 state legislature seats over the eight years that he was president, Democratic state legislature seats. And uh, this was accompanied, I think, by a lot of criticism of uh, also a a real thing, um, a Republican project called Red Map. Uh, which really gerrymandered all of the districts. But last week, um, 350 of those 900 seats came back. Uh, Democrats looked to have taken somewhere between 35 and 40 seats in the House of Representatives, uh, so winning about 54% of the two-party vote share, and I think they'll end up with about 54% of House seats. And, um, And so maybe it just sort of suggests that this historical pattern basically that every president um, through their term loses substantial numbers of House and uh, state legislature seats, uh, maybe that's just a function of the American system. Like that seems to happen in low turnout elections. It certainly, this election actually is the most, uh, the highest midterm turnout since 1914 before women had suffrage. Uh, And yeah, I mean, it, it, maybe it's just sort of an, a, not an immutable fact, obviously, because uh, Bush, too, didn't lose seats after 9-11, but a nearly immutable fact of American politics. Yeah, I, I guess it maybe uh, has a lot to do with the fact that sort of, you know, because the president is sort of the considered to be, you know, quote unquote, the leader of the country, right? The Whether or not, like, the country is doing well is sort of, uh, number one, you know, the midterms are, are kind of typically still connected to the president. And number two, it's also like, well, you know, you've had two years in power. You you get, you, you've you've done something or not done something. Uh, you've been exposed to a fair number of uh, of criticisms, and so you know that obviously I think tends to erode um, support to some degree. So that you know, I, I guess that makes sense. Um, but I think that the sort of the size of the turnaround, I think, was. What I don't know if I would say it surprised me, but it definitely there was this moment like on election night on Twitter when people were like, you know, drinking cyanide, like when the the New York Times needle briefly had this like weird flip out or something like that, and like oh no, everything is going terrible, and then kind of things stabilized to the level that I think pretty much the polling predicted, and uh, you know it settled on as we said you know, like between 35 and 40 seats in the house um, you know fair number of uh, state legislatures a large number of governorships um, not obviously a uniform success uh, because of the Senate and uh, you know other things that we'll talk about but um, you know fairly large you know I, I don't I don't like the word wave I, I hate that like but, but it is a large change in the structure of like the political, you know, elected representatives in this country. Right. Someone was pointing out, I think on Twitter, who also hates wave, that if this is a wave, 2014, 2010, and 2006 were all also waves. And so it's sort of, you know, we can agree we'll dismiss the term. But yeah, it does. I If there is one weird thing, it's that the polling held up 
so well. I think people suggested, hey, these polls suggest different narratives about the uh, House and the Senate. Um, you know, probably some version of that will happen. I think 538 wrote an article like this, like, you know, at the end it was something like 80 plus percent for each outcome. So, you know, still the joint probability that that would happen was was larger than the probability that, say, Dems would take both the Senate or Republicans would keep the House. But I think there was some sense that the polling was pointing in opposite directions. But the polling seemed to have a remarkably accurate night. I mean, maybe with the exception of Florida, where I think it, uh, you know, Democratic statewide support at least pulled substantially higher. The polling, you know, I don't know if there's another race that it really missed. Florida is a weird one. I mean, it's, there seem to be polls suggesting that, um, like, Gillum was ahead by something like, you know, what was it, like around 2% or something like that? Maybe even a little um, more, yeah. And, I mean, we, we still technically don't know the outcome of that election because of this, uh, the, the because it's going to both the Senate and the um, gubernatorial election. They're both going to a recount. That's mandated by Florida law. It's not a uh, conspiracy. Um, Voter fraud. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, it does, does, does seem to be like a fairly, like, not not a huge miss, but, you know, probably maybe somewhere with it. I don't know what the margin of error on these things was, but, you know, 2% seems like it could be within the margin of error. Um, what I think surprised me about Florida and, uh, was that um, there was a referendum on the ballot uh, to restore voting rights to, uh, you know, felons who had served their time. Uh, that passed with, I believe it was 64% of the vote, um, which is like nothing passes with 64% of the vote, right? Like that's just, uh, and, and it needed, I think it needed to clear like 55 or something like that to be, I, I don't remember what the, the there was. Yeah, a, or it was, maybe it was, even 60. I mean, it was some threshold. I, I, if you had told me that was winning and winning going away and Gillum would have lost, I, I would have been very That surprised. was a very, that was an odd one. Um, you, you would think that like, you know, I just I just don't know who these people are who are like, I mean, maybe I do know, I, but who who are voting for kind of what is a very, I would say, fairly substantial, you know, um, liberal liberal priority uh, in terms of criminal justice. And then yet also like voting for, you know, uh, DeSantis and Scott. Like, I, I weird, weird. Well, and DeSantis, especially given the campaign that he ran, um, which was, uh, well, to quote Gillum, I, I won't call DeSantis racist. I just know that racists are calling DeSantis racist. But, you know, so it is, maybe there's an optimistic take on this, which is if you have a nationalized political environment and one where race is really salient, if you have something that benefits African-Americans and is a core left priority, but it's on a fairness uh, mode. In other words, like voting rights or, um, you know, in a number of red states, uh, these independent redistricting commissions have passed. Mm -hmm. I believe one passed in Ohio actually in May, and then one passed in Utah, it looks like, just recently. Um, So I, I wonder if there's something which is like, you can get a lot of, you can't really get Republican votes on many left issues, especially redistributive issues, but actually on issues that are like, hey, you know what, elections should be fair, you'll pick up a lot of um, people who uh, certainly would score poorly on a uh, any sort of inventory of their uh, racial animus, but who, who may also dislike elites and, and think that restoring voting rights to people or having free and fair elections is, is a you know, just a, a piece of um, restoring power to the people. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, o- Ohio actually was another interesting one that uh, I wanted to mention because that there uh, you had both uh, the senator and the governor again, um, uh, both races. Uh, the incumbent senator, Sherrod Brown, won fairly easily. Uh, it was not, I mean, it was not like a titanic, you know, victory. But for Ohio, I think you could safely say that it was a pretty pretty decisive victory and there's no real doubt. But then at the same time, uh, the uh, Democratic uh, challenger and uh, actually my former boss, Rich Cordray, uh, you know, lost again fairly handily to um, Mike DeWine. Now, I'm not like an expert in Ohio politics. I don't know if like Mike DeWine is like really a beloved figure in 
at the state level in Ohio. He, I think he was he like had a held some previous statewide office, though. Is that right? Or I maybe I thought he was a representative before, but I'm not I'm not sure about that. Um, but it was it was odd to me that like you know oh you have these people who are like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for Sherrod Brown, but also I'm gonna vote for the Republican governor. Uh, so it seems like a fair amount of you know fair amount of ticket splitting going on there that maybe wasn't happening in other states. Yeah, I wonder if governor is the last race where you really can have ticket splitting. I mean, you had Democrats win uh, a gubernatorial race in Kansas, um, and you had Republicans actually win in Massachusetts and Maryland. Um, I cannot imagine a Republican senator winning in Massachusetts or Maryland. I cannot imagine. Well, they didn't, right? Uh, Ben Cardin and Elizabeth Warren both won with like 60-plus percent of the vote. Right. And, you know, in Maine, I think that's one of our best shots for a pickup in 2020. There are now no Republican state office holders in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, except for Susan Collins. Uh, That's right. So she's the, because with the gubernatorial flip this year in Maine with Paula Page losing. uh, Well, Paula Paula Page wasn't running, actually. It was, he was retiring. And the guy, whoever the guy was who was like supposed to, uh, you know, succeed him or whatever, the Republican. Uh, lost. Uh, don't know much about that race. Do not know much about Maine. I, I don't either. I, I just more meant that if you look at New England, the fact that there's only like one Republican office holder above dog catcher. I'm sure there's a state attorney general somewhere among the six states. But like, um, but sorry, in the on the federal side, Susan Collins. And yet on the um, governor's side, you have a governor of Vermont. You have a governor of Massachusetts. Um, the race for governor in Connecticut was very close. So there, maybe this sort of um, federalization or, or, or negative partisanship of elections um, does somehow has still an out for the governor's race. Like, I, I do think it's, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're like um, the Massachusetts governor's race against one of these weird things where Elizabeth Warren wins re-election with, you know, uh, just drops her opponent. Saddam um, Hussein-like margins, yeah. Yeah, um, but at the same time, um, you know, Charlie Barker just uh, completely f- flattens uh, the guy who was running against him, Jay Gonzalez. Um, my, my theory about this and about, like, sort of red governors in, like, overwhelming blue states is that, especially when you are dealing with a supermajority in both chambers, so basically you can't, like, you're, you can't govern as, like, a an actual Republican. Like you can't do Republican things because the legislature won't let you. So now it comes down to essentially like no my my thinking is that like nobody is really evaluating like Charlie Barker on ideology uh here because he just hasn't had a chance to like do very much. So he he can't do all like the bad things that Republicans typically do. And so like that actually helps him stay elected. Right. And you're just like this, you know, avuncular figure and people are like, yeah, 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 he's all right. He doesn't like, you know, ruin the state or whatever. That's interesting. And and your point about the super majorities is interesting because you wonder if there's sort of a, if you have super majorities that are just on the edge of being able to override a governor's veto, you might think, well, like, you know, criminal justice issues aside, and depending on your state, even your governor may not actually have as much input into that as, uh, uh, as, as one might think. Some states that have a lot more, like Florida, where the governor was like, until this proposition passed, independently approving ex-felons' rights to vote, for example. But like, say a state that has fairly robust protections for its citizens, and you might think, well, okay, actually, a governor of the other party isn't a terrible thing if his job roughly is to convince some swing uh, state senator not to override his veto of legislation. Like that's his that's his his power. Roughly, you might go well having having someone in there as like a as a check isn't terrible. But I think I think I would only think that maybe if I were starting from a place where I thought that my state government was like um, you know sufficiently left. I mean, maybe people in Massachusetts do think that. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems that the so there are three states in New England that currently have Republican governors. They are Massachusetts, Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, Both of the all three of those places have in the case of Massachusetts, I believe they have like a veto proof majority in both houses of the legislature. Um, I Vermont, I believe, has I I don't know about the, the exact distribution, but they definitely have a blue legislature as well. Uh, New Hampshire just flipped, actually, in this election. So 
uh, New Hampshire with its uh, comically uh, large house of uh, representatives or whatever, where like every third person in New Hampshire is actually a, a, a state rep. And, and, and we do have an, this other example, right, of a uh, Republican governor of a blue state uh, who was voted out, which was Bruce Rauner in um, Illinois. Right. And like there you had a guy who really like did try to govern as a Republican and uh, and he lost. Right. He lost his reelection bid to uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker, another billionaire. That's awesome. Um, Couldn't Oprah have, have run really like like not to steal your thunder here, but it, it is annoying to me that uh, if we're going to have a billionaire governor of Illinois, um, could it at least be Oprah? Like, I, you know, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be Oprah. I mean, like, seems seems uh, entirely uh, entirely possible. Um, but you know, there I think you had like the opposite effect, where where he really did try to like you know go after like pensions and uh, you know the teachers unions and stuff like that, and uh, seem you know that cost him his uh, his reelection bid. Uh, so you know, I, I don't know. Like you, if things are going well and you are not trying to make things worse. I think people tend to feel, my, my guess is that people are gonna like grant you the benefit of the doubt and stay with the status quo. But if you're like actively, you know, declaring war on a large part of your constituency, like that's probably gonna uh, affect you politically. So uh, I don't know, that, that, that was my uh, theory about um, kind of how these, how these governorships and, and stuff have played out. I mean, you see this in Maine too, right? Like with LePage who just like, uh, you know, completely tried to like level the state, and um, you know, and and he, I don't, I don't remember if he was term, was he termed out or did I think he, he might be choose? termed out? But right, it is uh, you know, he rejected the the Medicaid expansion that the voters that's right. voted for, that, and that's right. He well, the voters voted for it, and he just was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, and um, now there is a Democratic governor who is going to do that. Um, by the way, like Maine is uh, uh, the other exciting thing that's happening in Maine. Uh, exciting for me, actually, is that there's going to be a House district that's going to be decided by instant runoff voting. That's super cool. Uh, the, the Maine second is actually a um, the, the federal federal elections in Maine are um, going. Th this is the first cycle where they're decided by um, uh rank choice so you basically get to indicate like who like the order in which you prefer people and even though the uh democratic challenger got slightly fewer first place votes it looks like he's actually going to win because like all the like the third fourth and whatever people who are running like all the people who voted for those guys and as their first choice also voted for like the democrat as their second so um that's actually really cool it's like a little neat experiment in um electoral um, electoral counting, which I think actually, you know, we should have a lot more of. Did, now, in the ranked choice voting, um, it only comes into play if the the leading candidate has less than 50%. That's correct, right? and they both did. Yeah, so so th this is fascinating. I mean, it would, clearly, uh, it would be preferred on the, uh, the national level. I mean, we, we would have had President Al Gore. I imagine we would have had uh, President Hillary Clinton, although almost certainly, I'm, I'm certain about Al Gore. No, I'm maybe actually, not Clinton. But I'm less know. certain about Clinton because although the Green Party margins were higher, I think there were also a lot of Libertarian votes, and I do not know if you were voting Libertarian in 2016 was your second choice, yeah, Clinton or Trump. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, well, who uh, knows? Who knows? But so, so, but let's presume that would have happened. So that would be great. I, I'm trying to think if there's a circumstance where I would dislike that. I guess the thing that um, right now in American politics, it seems like more third party voters are on the left. So I think I'm naturally inclined to like that. But one could imagine a scenario where this really empowers some sort of far right uh, opposition as well, right? I mean, you could imagine in the scenario where this was prevalent, you know, you could have had both never Trumpers and Trumpers just basically have two right wing parties, right? I mean, I think you could, but it would require kind of, a, I feel like, a d slightly different history than the one we're like, the slightly different timeline than the one we're currently living in, where we're like, we do have the far right wing party and it's just called the Republican Party. So, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, Steve King, still the, the one elected, uh, so, so Iowa has four congressional districts, two of them flipped, uh, one of them pretty decisively, and one of them sort of, you know, not, not super decisively, but like, definitely like, you know, uh, 
a definite win, uh, but uh, Steve King, the one Iowa Republican on the federal level, left uh, left alive. But at least it was close. It you was know, close. I mean, I don't know who the people in the Iowa for. Actually, I read an article that was fascinating. Was it? Uh, I'm forgetting the congressperson now, but there's a congressperson from California who is very anti-immigrant, and his family has a farm in Iowa that relies on undocumented labor. Of course it does. Of and, course. Um, they're, they're very sensitive about this, as you might imagine. But what was interesting was some reporter went out to write a piece about this, because, of course, you know, what, you have to write a piece about this. And um, all the people in town were like, we depend on undocumented labor. But, you know, Steve King's a good guy. We're going to vote for him. And it really, I mean, it, it just seems sort of like this thing where they were like, well, Steve King's heart is in the right racist place, but if he were ever to get in power and actually restrict our access to this undocumented labor, we would be really upset. But mostly we're voting for him for rhetorical reasons, because he's like sort of aligned with our, um, you know, uh, beliefs about the Volkstadt or whatever. And it was really creepy because they were sort of saying this stuff openly to the reporter and the reporter was doing a little bit of this like, I, a coastal person, feel uncomfortable reporting the actual quotes of these people. But it was like, I don't know. I mean, they seemed pretty which, objectionable. Which, by the way, if you are like, you know, if you are voting for the, um, uh, for the, you know, if you're in it for the racist rhetoric, like, yeah, Steve King definitely is, uh, is your guy because uh, in his, what, however many terms he served in the House, which is like a lot now, he has not done a single thing. Like, he has literally not sponsored, like, I think any legislation he doesn't he doesn't do anything he's a complete like black hole of like activity and the only thing that he does is he just spout racist bullshit so yeah like if you're if you're like a racist iowan you're like you know what i really need these like undocumented laborers coming from you know central america but like what i also want to do is i want to show people how much i hate like you know latin american people like yeah like i'm gonna vote for steve k because that's 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 a perfect combination it is weird, though, right? Like, Steve King was in the news for endorsing a fringe candidate in the Toronto mayor's race. It's like, why is a congressman in Iowa making Canadian local endorsements? It, it is, if, I, if I were in Iowa, and maybe it just, again, perfectly lines with their preferences. By the way, the congressperson, I cannot believe, in one of these uh, streaks of our timeline being too improbable, and so therefore my brain rejected it, the congressman whose family's farm uses undocumented labor in Iowa is Devin Nunes because, oh, of, course. of course, it's Devin Nunes. Naturally, yeah, naturally, uh, yeah. Devin Nunes, one of the uh, one of the few Republicans uh, in California to survive the purge. Uh, Duncan Hunter also uh, indicted for like comically obscene uh, campaign uh, finance violations. Uh, golf also balls said they were for the Wounded Warrior Project. Real thing. Just spent like thousands of dollars at steakhouses. I mean, just the most basic shit. Um, still, still reelected. Did all? I think actually everyone who is under investigation won, which is an interesting thing for my corruption doesn't matter thesis. Chris Collins indicted for insider trading and not like sophisticated insider trading like hear about a clinical trial result call all your friends and tell them to dump the stock insider trading um right duncan hunter you just mentioned uh, bob menendez right bob menendez uh, keith ellison in minnesota won the ag race um but basically uh partisanship is a hell of a drug and i gotta say this in new jersey i'm not a new jersey voter obviously i would have voted for menendez yeah, probably would have too. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's like, he sounds like a real scumbag. Um, but it's kind of like, well, you know, he's a scumbag, but he's not a Republican. So I mean, he's, he's really terrible, actually. I mean, he's, he's I draw an the awful, line at, awful dude. I draw the line at Roy Moore. I think I, I think I would not vote. If Roy Moore were a Democrat, which is hard, hard to imagine, I would not vote for Roy Moore. But I think, right, the Menendez stuff, it's like, eh, what's a little, he was acquitted. You know? What was the deal? I mean, it was like bribery, right? That I was believe the... his close friend who he claimed constituent services for it, despite the fact that the man did not live in New Jersey, uh, it was some like Medicare fraud. Oh, I perfect. Think. Perfect. Yeah. Um, for, for junkets, the, the, the glory of the junket. But, but here's the thing about this election. So we talked about the, the thermostat a little bit. I do want to say, because um, I think people will pillory me otherwise, gerrymandering is a very serious issue at the state level. In Wisconsin, 
I saw something that said the Democrats got 54% of the vote in Wisconsin for state legislative races, which is about what uh, Democrats got nationally. And nationally, Democrats got, of course, 54% of House seats. Uh, in Wisconsin, they got 36%. So gerrymandering is really real at the state legislature. In North Carolina, I think they basically won close to 50%, Democrats did, of the votes, maybe a little over, maybe a little under. And they just barely broke uh, the supermajority. It was like they just captured like 35% of, of yeah. the seats. So at the state level, it's a it's a really big deal, and it and it's often used to disenfranchise um, minority populations. At the federal level, I don't know whether it's just the the lack of proportionality. So like California is a third Democrats, but as Jerry noted, it's going to have like. 85% of its 55 House seats are going yeah. to Democrats. And California has an independent commission do it. So, you know, I, I don't know I don't know exactly what it is, but it, it does feel like it's it's harder to um, it's harder to gerrymander at the federal level uh, those House districts, uh, maybe because there just is a certain compactness threshold and maybe also because there are enough large blue states that uh, these things sort of balance out. You know, it's worth going back and, and looking at sort of, you know, what is the principle by which gerrymandering works, right? You, what you do is you, you take um, your political opponents and you, you pack them into a district where they're like, you know, the overwhelming majority. So you get these districts that are like 75, 25% Democratic. And what you do, and, and you do that in order to slice uh, you, those voters out of other districts that you then hope to win. But the problem is that like when you're winning those districts, you're typically winning them, um, you know, you're winning them maybe like 55-45, right? And, and that's just like simple math. You can't, you, you, you can't tilt those balances too much because they're just like the voters aren't distributed that way. Um, you know, and, and in kind of like a one-off, you know, 55-45 is a pretty like pretty good result. It's a pretty decisive victory. But as you know, in an in an iterated game, right? You have to, especially in the, when it, you're talking about the house, you have to like keep winning those every two years, and redistricting only happens every ten years. Whereas like people move all the time, and demographics change, and there's like secular trends that you're fighting, right? And so, um, you know, when you create districts like that, you certainly do leave them vulnerable to a situation where like all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually there's like, like, well, you know, I have the, this shitty president that everybody hates and then like everybody actually shows up. Um, and uh, that's, uh, right, you, you leave yourself open to these kinds of events where... Or compositional like, shifts, as you noted, Or right? compositional like, shifts, like of course. Like more suburban Republicans that were probably in these safe districts are now actually voting for Democrats. Right. And some rural Democrats, I'm sure, are now voting for Republicans. Like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, y you know, uh, it's not that, I think... I, I guess what I would say is, like, it's not that gerrymandering is not effective in, like, kind of the first... In the first degree. It's just that... You have to the this the time scale on which like the gerrymanders happen and the degree to which you can make them happen is not proportional to it's not the same as like the time scale on which like elections happen and it's not the time and the and the time scale on which like the 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 composition of the districts can shift and so yeah absolutely you can have a situation where uh, you know massive like big turnout and like uh, you know the sort of the political environment they swamp that effect um, but. Nonetheless, I think that, you know, there are plenty of places you can go and you can just find like, I mean, Pennsylvania is a very good example, like just absolutely just these uh, horrific districts that are like, uh, you know, like look like they were drawn by Etch-A-Sketch. Uh, just like, you know. Right. <laughs> Although, I mean, Pennsylvania, as a result, had uh, re-court ordered maps. for this That's election. right. That's right. They did. And so I, I'm, I'm not saying, I guess, you know. I would like it if every word were to move to uh, independent commission-drawn districts. And I think a new VRA that sort of um, managed to get through SCOTUS that um, in some way got states to do so, although our ability, of course, to bribe states to do policies is, is severely limited after the ACA ruling. 
But, um, you know, the more we could push towards that or the more that, um, you know, both uh, Eric Holder and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger have been running on uh, Arnold was, for example, behind the uh, Michigan and Colorado ballot initiatives to, to get redistricting, to be fair. So I, I support all that. I just think that the, the point that Jerry is making is really right. Like the um, it shouldn't be used as an excuse. You know, we can, with Texas existing maps, I think in 2020, um, take a substantially higher number of House districts than even we took this time. And I think we're, we're going to take two or three that we hadn't before. And, and we took substantial chunks of the state legislature that we hadn't before. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you look at a lot of those, um, there, there's this cool map that New York Times did about kind of like how much each district shifted and like these little arrows that kind of show you the magnitude of the shift. Um, so there's been a lot of shift in, uh, you know, in obviously in, in blue direction, I guess. Um, but if you look at a lot of those Texas races, right, they're pretty tight. I mean, they're not like, they're not blowouts, right? Republicans aren't winning those races by like, you know, 20 or 30 points. They're winning them by like five points, right? And like when you're winning a race by five points, I mean, it's good to win. It's better to win than to lose. But, you, you know, if you, you have to keep your, like if you, keep the future in mind and you sort of like I mean Republicans have like a this like really serious problem electorally which is that like their voters keep dying um and like they're not it's like it's hard to find new voters to vote for them um and uh you know you have to be and like that is another thing that happens on a fairly short time scale so like those districts are, you know, maybe they're not like maybe Texas will not be a, a blue state in 2020. But like you can see a future where Texas is competitive for Democrats like we're, we're getting there. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. So at the statewide level, Beto lost by, I think, three points to a fairly unpopular uh, Republican. Um, hmm. Ted Cruz. Uh, but but maybe you could take like a more neutral race like. Lieutenant Governor. Does anyone know who the Lieutenant Governor is of Texas? I, I did not. I'm literally looking at a screen that tells me, and I will forget his name as soon as I switch to a different tab. This guy, Dan Patrick. Uh, That's right, yeah. He won 51-46 against a guy, Mike Collier. Uh, two points went to a libertarian, which seems like a pretty... I, I, I will say, though, that uh, Texas is unique, I believe, in that it's... Well, I don't know if unique, but it's certainly a high-profile case in which a lieutenant governor actually has, like, meaningful powers. So, like, lieutenant governor in California, I don't even know what that person does. Um, or, like, I, we have a lieutenant governor in New York. I also don't know what she does. Um, nothing, as far as I can tell. But, like, in, in, in Texas, uh, the lieutenant governor actually has a, like has the power to set the legislative agenda uh so it's actually like a really meaningful office and it's not just like a, a sinecure so the fact that this like is competitive is i mean greg abbott still won his re-election by like a really large margin but like um the fact that this lieutenant governor's governor's race is competitive i think says to me something it, it might be specific to texas because people know what's on the line so to totally fair point. I mean, I, I think there's just a thing here, which is like, if the statewide offices, with the exception of, that's my daughter, Edie, with the exception of um, the governor's race, which is, you know, Abbott won by 13 points, every other race there is between 5.3 points, you know, the agricultural commission's race was, uh, was, was five points. So, you know, I, I think that really says in 2020, Texas is going to be competitive up and down the line. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, sort of, there were a lot of results, I think, again, at the state level where um, uh, I think maybe those results aren't getting as much attention as they should. Uh, and I think they're, they're like pretty important. Um, a lot of interesting things happened in Michigan, for example. Um, so pretty clean sweep for uh, for Democrats there, not just at not just in terms of like the actual races. So gubernatorial race, um, <clears throat> I forget what what else. I mean, the Senate was up. Uh, Debbie Stabenow won pretty handily, um, but also in terms of uh, various propositions that were on the ballot there. Uh, so independent redistricting, we already. Um, mentioned that one uh medical marijuana passed pretty overwhelmingly i think in uh, in michigan as well uh there was a there was um what was there 
there were the redistricting thing happened also in, in Ohio, but there was another Colorado. We mentioned that that also uh, flipped the state legislature to blue. And in fact, there are interesting fact. Uh, I did not know this, but they're apparently the only divided uh, legislature in the remaining in the country at the state level is in Minnesota, where there was like this weird result where Democrats won like the statewide races like by a lot. And then Republicans actually flipped like two Minnesota districts uh, at the House level. Yeah, it was, it was just a strange I, I don't I don't know what what exactly accounts for that. But uh, that so that was the thing that happened. But um, but again, uh, a lot of these really um, and of course, oh, California, you know, had a uh, very important uh, proposition on the ballot. It is now permanently on daylight savings time. So it's really like really paying attention to that one. God, see, California <laughs> always has, as former Californians, uh, Jerry and I know well, the uh, proliferation of ballot uh, propositions always seems insane. Although that one actually seems legit. Uh, we should do that. But I mean, I feel like every election season, it's always what is the weird thing that was going on in California? Um, and and of course, you know, since since we're saying we should do that, um, you, uh, New York actually had a very <clears throat> had a big big result, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, politics here. Because uh, you know, if you're if you're at all familiar with New York politics, you know that the uh, New York Senate uh, is this like you know extremely revanchist institution that has been sort of blocking progress in the state for like many many decades, and that is no longer the case. Uh, the most of the various IDC, which is like the Independent Democratic, uh, was like caucus. Caucus, uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, that was which was basically a group of like de- renegade Democrats who were like, who kind of turned themselves into the like power brokers by uh, caucusing with the Republicans. Uh, most of those people were defeated at the primary level, um, and then a whole bunch of Democrats uh, also won. Uh, the various state senate races. So New York actually has a like the trifecta, um, and there will, and so uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of uh, I think legislation that will be uh, introduced at the state level here, uh, which is really exciting. I, we, one of the things that has been like um, a big thing that uh, you know advocates and uh, activists in New York have been uh, pushing for uh, has been uh, to revise our like arcane voting system which is just complete garbage it's like the worst voting we, participation we don't even have no fault absentee if it's you just, want an, it's awful if you it's, want an absentee ballot it's actually very difficult to get in New York State and I think as as Jerry's alluding to I think it's just a relic of an older machine era uh, New York uh, and and hopefully these these flips have uh, have have changed something. I mean, right, the state Senate uh, going our way is, is really a, a huge edge. Although we still have Andrew Cuomo, and who knows actually how much liberal legislation Andrew Cuomo will get through. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, Andrew Cuomo, I think, is a, a, he's a snake, but he's also one of these people who I feel like kind of, uh, you know, has his finger to the wind. And um, I think it would look bad for him to really like torpedo a lot of uh, a lot of these things like you know his his real priority is like whatever making sure that uh billionaires don't get taxed more uh i, I think see, so might we'll be, get voting rights criminal justice and marijuana we, we might get, yeah we might get those things because the the, the, yeah they don't affect uh they don't affect like you know that like whether amazon has to uh, pay taxes on their like new new office in queens or whatever yeah, I mean, it's a uh, that's a, that's a that's an interesting take, and I think Jerry's take is probably right. Um, the I, there are a lot of things in New York politics that you wish would be better. I mean, among them um, would be really uh, reform of our drug laws. It's you know nationally uh, support for legalizing marijuana is well over fifty percent. This is one of these famed policies. That Again, Missouri the, just voted to make medical marijuana legal. Right. Missouri. Like, this, this is one of these funny things, actually, where, like, the moderate political position is an extreme position in terms of national opinion. But in New York, I, I don't know what the polling has to be, but I would be shocked if it's not uh, north of 60% popular. Um, and yet those bills continue to die in committee. So Yeah, and I, I, but I think that, like, the I, I'm really hopeful that with uh with the sort of like unified legislature and uh the sort of the impetus maybe of of this uh, of this election at least that will lead to um some like legitimately progressive legislation and not just like you know there's not going to be this like chamber where everything goes to die because like 
you know, a few like old people with like machine ties are like killing it because like they hate it or whatever. And they're only nominal Democrats. I do have to say, while we're talking about the, the local races, um, a thing uh, that surprised me a bit was the way that the IDC had seemed to have power for so long was roughly they were like, well, how are you going to kick out someone in a primary? And, you know, we saw this in New York, of course, with some of the House races because, you know, you had uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, but in the state Senate, it really uh, it really was quite impressive to see um, in the in the primaries, a number of the IDC just get taken out. And I guess I tend to think of primaries as being the, a, a place where that's, that type of change is very difficult to enact, um, to remove uh, incumbent party members. Um, and uh, and I think that actually sort of bespeaks for a type of local community organizing, and especially some of the work, I guess, that the DSA has done, because I think the DSA was very involved in getting um, a number of those IDC people out, um, that I, I, I don't want to say I've been skeptical of, but that, I, that I've often uh, wondered what its impact could be. And you really, in New York State, saw that this year. I think one of the things about like primaries especially, especially low participation primaries like New York, is that the flip side of those is that when you don't have a lot of people participating, it just means that like every vote matters more, right? So if you can, mo so you know, if you can mobilize like whatever a thousand people for a statewide race, well, okay, that's not very many people. But if you can mobilize a thousand people for like, you know, a local primary, that's like that's enough to give you the victory almost. So um, that is definitely like. You know, not not to say that like we shouldn't make voting easier because we definitely should, and there should be like the participation should be increased. But at the same time, there's like when you undermine that, right? You also leave yourself vulnerable to these kinds of situations because you think, ah, you know, nobody's gonna vote. All the people are gonna vote and come out and vote for me because I'm the incumbent. And lo and behold, like a bunch of new people show up, and like all of a sudden you're fucked because like, you know, there, it only takes a very small number. A relatively small number of people to uh, to change that result, and and I think that I mean a a piece to that too is especially in urban areas, um, we've had a Democratic Party machine that does not represent the politics of, of those voters, and so you know if you look at the Republicans, one thing that one thing that they did somewhat admirably was um, you know in the House side at least when their people believed crazy things, they would put up a representative who believed those crazy things and vote for that person. Um, and I think that they're, you know, and also representationally, um, you know, in the Democratic caucus now, I think you have two um, uh, Muslim women for the first time right. in the House, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and I'm forgetting. Uh, Ilhan, I'm like reaching for her. She's a Somali-American. Um, Somar, I think, Ilhan Somar. If and I'm so not there, so so not only is it about representation of persons of color and LGBTQ groups and and religious minorities, but also policy issues. I mean, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is well to the left of me, but given the politics of um, you know young urban voters and especially the energy of the DSA, it's very surprising that there aren't more, um, you know. DSA-aligned members within the Democratic House Caucus. And I would expect that to shift over time as there is more of this rotation, whether through active primarying or just through, uh, you know, existing members retiring on the Democratic side. It should also be noted that uh, I think this is the, uh, this uh, incoming class of representatives will have the first uh, Native American representatives at the federal level uh, with, um, you know, uh, Sharice Davids in Kansas three and um, Deb Holland in New Mexico. Got it. Uh, I'm sorry. I, gu I guess they're the first, they're the first Native American women not to be, um, uh, to be elected to the house. So, you know, big, uh, big changes there. Yeah. And, and I, I think also just geographically, I mean, there, the, the number of, I think people who are representative of their communities um, you know, another New Mexico, um, this is, I don't know that the Associated Press has called this, but she's in the lead and I think will take the seat, uh, is Xochitl Torres Small in the New Mexico Second, which is a sort of rural southern district in New Mexico. I think there are a lot of people who are closer to 
the places that they represent. And, you know, I, I'm not a fan of term limits for many reasons um, in, in federal offices. I, I, I question their constitutionality. But one nice thing about the sort of greening of the uh, troops, as it were, is I think you I think there there is an important part to representation that is about representing place and, and having ties with community that it is, regardless of the, the party uh, uh, membership. And, you know, the Democratic caucus, I think, looks more like the parts of America that it represents. I, for, for one thing, I think the Democratic caucus in the House is approaching 50 percent women. Yeah, it's close. It's like 45, I think. Of course, the whole House is basically 25 percent women because the Republican caucus is, is almost uh, almost entirely male. Um, the uh, with the, I mean there are a couple notable exceptions obviously. One thing I did want to talk about this on this pod that we haven't is the fact that Pelosi looks to be running a very uh, close race uh, for Speaker, um, while Schumer, as far as I can tell, no one is going to try and take out for uh, the Senate Minority Leader, and I I really do not understand that. Yeah, I mean it's it's sort of baffling to me. I, I you know you could you could probably like. I have reserve. I mean, I have reservations about both of them, but like Schumer, much more so than like than Pelosi. He's just like kind of an ineffective, just just this wet noodle that nobody nobody re- like. I don't even know like nobody respects him. Nobody fears him, right? Like even when I feel like, you know, when when even somebody like Harry Reid, right? When he was the minority leader, it's like he still had like. He had a certain amount of cachet, I guess, that made people respect him. Like, like nobody respects Chuck Schumer. Uh, and like, maybe it's just like it's a thankless job, and you know, nobody wants to take it from him. But at the same time, like, if you're looking to be whatever the the face of I don't know, democratic politics in 2020 or 20 or, or going forward in general, like, why wouldn't you step forward and be like, you know, hey, actually, you know, maybe it's uh, maybe maybe somebody other than this like old dude from from new york who's been in the game forever maybe he maybe somebody else should have this job now. well and especially i think the thing that bothers me with the pelosi schumer comparison is if you look at pelosi she's constantly hi edie she's constantly pushed policy left at the federal level when when you look at schumer versus pelosi i guess what's frustrating is it's pelosi who pushed a carbon tax it's pelosi who got the aca through in whatever form that it is whereas and, you know, you, you bring up Harry Reid. Harry Reid was really actually very effective and also built the machine in Nevada that continues to win races. Continues to produce results. I mean, Governorship, you know, uh, Senate and Senate race, uh, several House districts, at least one House district, if not more. I mean, I don't know whether to credit him or the culinary union in, in Las Vegas, but still. And, and Schumer, right, as you point to, there's just no... There's really no achievement that he can claim other than, I don't know, keeping Democrats further right on Israel than they should be. Like, like, like it just is he I think wet blanket's a great word for it. All right. So what's our what's our closing takeaway from uh, from this uh, monumental event that took place uh, last Tuesday? We didn't talk impeachment at all, but I think Dems are going to be put in a spot where they're probably going to be forced to impeach Trump. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that it'll be the correct thing to do. I think they could do it now. I think Mueller is going to come back with at least a recommendation on obstruction, uh, if not on other topics like collusion or the federal crimes that the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Trump violated with regards to his payoffs of his mistresses. But, you know, I don't, I, I don't think impeachment will play well politically. Um, on the other hand, I, I, you know, Trump deserves to be impeached. So I think that's I think that's one of the weird things about the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think impeachment didn't play well. Uh, certainly, we only have one modern example, and that's Bill Clinton. Uh, I think, um, you know, times and uh, mores were different at that uh, then um, than they are now. I sort of think that kind of my, my take on it is that the polarization is already kind of built in. Um, so... You know, do you stand to lose like anything additional by impeaching him? I would guess probably not. Although, like, it will definitely make Republicans mad. But like, anything you do makes Republicans mad. So it's kind of, and not clear to me that that it's going to have the same effect that it did uh, uh, under Clinton. And um, anything you can do to like kind of bring, even if it's like not even just, even if it's not in a full blown impeachment, but if you're just like sitting there and like 
every week like it's uh you know we're gonna release like uh, another another uh thing about like the crimes that Donald Trump has been doing. I actually think that like so, so don't get me wrong. I think that's a very useful thing. They won't be able to pass any legislature, obviously, but the investigatory powers to to be used to blow up not just Trump but his cabinet, his family, those business deals. Hundred percent agree. I think the more that you could expose these scandals of the administration and drive the agenda that way, that's useful. I just think that if we get into the theater of an impeachment hearing, I I. I would see actually them having eight hearings on Zinc, you know, the Interior Secretary oh, and his corruption. That. I think that's actually more useful than an impeachment trial. But that that may be an idiosyncratic take. I also think uh, the Senate we may never take back, like ever. Uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think you know the the map is a little bit better in uh, in 2020. Um, you know, the thing about the Senate is that you know you only have those elections every six years, so we don't have to worry about like whatever. If assuming uh, like Kristen Cinema hold, holds on in Arizona um, and uh, various and like you know John Tester friggin won his you know race in Montana, so assuming those all of that all that goes you know we don't have to defend those seats for another six years and a lot and six years is a long time in politics, as uh, as Edie will tell you. Right, uh, in six years Edie will be off to college. Um, no, she'll, she'll be she'll have a PhD at that point. She's already in college, as we as we've established. At the oh, right, 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 as we established. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess my my takeaway is that like when I when I was looking at this, I was like, sort of this is one thing that this election reinforced for me is like just how much the Republican Party just like is Trump's party now. Like it is all just Trumpism all the way down, um, and like it's it really puts. Um, an emphasis on like how difficult it is for Republicans to sort of like, you know, straddle this line where on the one hand you have to like keep your like, you know, you know, the, now that now that like the real crazies are like actually the people in power, not only do you have to like play to this to this like just fringe right wing base in the primaries, but then you also have to run away from it in the general. And that is like a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and so run away from it, depending on the state, depending I mean, on the state, it's, it's obviously like very local. It's very local. But what, what, what I'm saying is that like, it is hard, like it is much harder, I think, to make a political living playing this game than I think Republicans probably thought. I, I think that's right. And, you know, Paul Ryan is never going to run for office again. And if a, if a part of politics is dead, it is the the 25 years where libertarian economic theses got smuggled in under a racist fringe. Now it's just the racist fringe. And yeah. I think the libertarian economic theories have really no place, uh, which I guess is good. Um, I mean, the racism is bad, obviously. But the, but the death of absurd libertarian economic theories uh, outside of their judiciary uh, holdings is, is, I think, good. All right. Well, that that uh, that kind of wraps it up for uh, for uh, our election talk. Um, hopefully, we'll uh, you know, like I said, now that Ed is in college, uh, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be able to do much more podcasting. So hopefully, uh, we'll see you in uh, not the too distant future, and we'll, uh, we'll get to hear from Jerry's child. Yeah, we'll get to hear from my son next. Uh, he's he's also uh, on his way to uh, university. So. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.